Hey, 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 everybody. It's Brian here. Greg and Munya are off uh, vacationing in the small apple. That's right. Munya is taking Greg on a tour of all the places where you can get breakfast sandwiches at the only place in the world that you can get breakfast sandwiches. New York, New York, baby. I uh, hear they are currently staking out Max Pub as we speak. And I look forward to a live report on the ground from inside Max Pub any day now. But this week we decided we we uh, we love our listeners so much. Instead of tricking you all, we treated you all with a special Halloween episode on Monday. And we decided this week, why don't we keep the treats coming? All right. Now, I saw in the news yesterday on Wednesday that uh, the Federal Reserve had hinted that they were going to relax on interest rates and maybe instead of continuing to just shove the economy into a recession uh, they were going to lighten up because enough progress had been made on inflation already and then uh, that was good news you got to hear on the radio maybe for about 20 minutes and then federal reserve chairman jerome powell came out and said uh yeah that's all bullshit we're still going balls to the wall we're making this recession happen And that same day, the Fed chair uh, president from the Kansas City branch, you know, in a statement, essentially said what the problem was, which is, quote, We see today that there is a bit of a savings buffer still sitting for households that may allow them to continue to spend in a way that keeps demand strong. That suggests we may have to keep at this for a while. So there you go. From the Fed itself, the problem is, there might still be some money in your savings account that they haven't taken from you yet. So uh, that that belongs to capital. If you got a little money in your hand, you got a little money in your pocket, uh, that's not your money, all right? Just know that, okay? That money is not yours. You need to give it up, all right? And that's what the Fed is up to. So back in June, because we're always painfully ahead of the curve, we recorded a double episode covering both the Federal Reserve's view of inflation, uh, how they use monetary policy to, quote, curb inflation, and by inflation, what, of course, they mean is workers' wages, and the sort of economic and political underpinnings of this whole operation, right? So in this episode, which was a free episode, again, back in June, uh, we talk about the crises of the 1970s that ushered in this new economic policy that you've come to know and love as neoliberalism, all right? Uh, We talk about the crisis of the 70s that created neoliberalism, and then in the episode we'll be releasing free right after this today as well. Uh, We will follow up on that, and we will talk about the politics of the Federal Reserve itself, and we'll continue the story through the 80s, 90s, up to today. So enjoy this treat, this look into all of our futures. Uh, Look, put on your shades. The future is bright. All right, we'll see you around the bend. And again, we recorded this in June, so there's going to be some uh, references to things happening in June. Uh, Look, uh, nothing ever changes in this country, right? So uh, just pretend like you heard it just just now, like it's brand new news. Uh, Something like it's probably happening anyways. All right, let's go on with the show.
Hey everyone. It's uh, Mechanical Freak. Uh, uh, coming to you from that city of the future on the bleeding edge of neoliberal dystopia. Hey, and we all are here still in Seattle on the boat. It's a sunny uh, Friday morning. Uh, we got there's a little breeze going, uh, a respite mm-hmm. from the rain. One day, I guess we get off from torrential rain. Atmospheric river. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so you know, we got the hatches all open before I have to batten them down. I'm Greg. I'm Munya. I'm Brian. And uh, yeah, and good. Seattle still sucks. Seattle still it sucks. Does. Good, good to be here with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Munya, you are even more withered than when we talked earlier in the week. <laughs> Sands, breakfast sandwiches, yep. you know. Uh, how, how is coming back to Seattle after living in the small apple, right? Yes. Coming to the big course. apple, Washington. Right, right. Um, you know, I've been eating bananas. Oh, wow. Interesting. They ch- you changed in New York. I changed, yeah. <laughs> Munia forced to go without breakfast and, you know, therefore uh, basically on an intermittent fasting regime where, you know, he's... Uh, encouraging his metabolic flexibility you know yeah it's like no accident, accidental it's accidental uh intermittent fasting you know <laughs> like i don't have any time or anything i'm not on keto or whatever it's just like uh there's no breakfast to eat because yeah. you can't get a breakfast anywhere else yeah but the small apple new york yeah but i love that you came to washington but you looked at the rainier cherries and you said no i don't live here anymore you looked at the Macintosh apples and said, no, sorry, I don't live here nope. anymore. You yeah. looked at the the Golden Delicious or whatever the fuck apples are called and then grabbed a banana. Yep. Interesting. What a rejection. <laughs> do they sell bananas at bodegas? They do, of but you, you, they do. You, don't, you don't really want them. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? Are the bananas you don't want to no do good? produce at bodegas, you know. Right, that's that's Munoz New York advice. Yeah, don't, don't, don't get the bananas. Don't get the, the bananas at the bodega. It's oh. hard to get a perfectly ripe banana from the store. Anywhere. Ready to yeah. eat. Yeah. yeah. Well, they pull them early, I think, for shipping reasons. Yeah. So they never taste as good as they could. But like, you, to find one, like, to eat that day is hard. Or even the next day. You got to get them, because they, you know, they're only really good for, like, a day or so. So you got to get them ahead. Yeah, yeah you got to get them, like, a week in advance and then watch you gotta them. got to be speckled. They got to get a few spots on them or they're not ready to eat. <laughs> As a kid, I actually really liked unripe bananas for some reason. Like when they're like, like weird when they're and hard. green. Yeah, yeah, like when they're like weird and hard. I don't know why. Like they taste like very um, planty at that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as no, a kid, no I was sugar. all about it. I was if like, you're gonna like, to me. you know, like cook them in some way. That's you know. Well, I mean, that's a different game. I mean, yeah, but you, you just like eating them straight up. Yeah, I was just eating them straight up. They're like hard though. Like they're like. I think I liked I mean, that. I think I liked like the mouthfeel of it. Okay. I, as a kid, I wasn't like it's super like a squishy. Food yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it was like the motherfucker still will not eat an avocado. Yeah, I don't like avocados. Don't like the don't like the feel of it. Oh, my girlfriend bad. like sliced her finger off the other day doing that, like cutting an avocado. Are, are you gotta you gonna, like get stitches. Are you gonna stick with her? You know, I mean, we'll see how bad this the stitching <laughs> is. <laughs> You're so brave. Yeah, you know. Uh, no, no, I mean, you know, look, that can happen. I Well, because it's basically just a little, like, gelatin mold of fat, right? Yeah. So when you get your knife in there, your knife will just slide through real quick. And if you're right. not paying attention to hand position, things like that, yeah, you can slice yourself. Apparently, avocados are, like, one of the most dangerous foods to slice. Avocados <laughs> and mangoes. Yeah. yeah. Mangoes, I can Mangoes. Mangoes. Mango can fuck you up because, like, 
Yeah. Well, you have to like hold it, and it's really like slippery and slimy while you're trying to like slice the piece. Also, you, you gotta like, you gotta cut. I'm sure there are methods, but you gotta cut around yeah. the seed in the yeah. mango. Right. You don't have to with an avocado. You just cut up to the seed and then yeah. twist the seed out. Yeah, so. the seed will come out. The problem with the yeah. mango is the seed won't come out. Mm-hmm. So you're like working your knife <laughs> while holding it. And of course, your hand's getting increasingly slippery. Right? <laughs> yeah, right, and, right. You know, yeah. Every time I'm cutting a mango, I'm always like, this could be my last one. Yeah. <laughs> well, thankfully, thankfully, like the finger didn't like come all the way off, but it was like uh. very close to the tenderloin, which would have like caused permanent Oof. damage. Like oh, it nice. was like pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, but nice. it did not hit the tenderloin. So, you know, uh. she got lucky. As a kid, I was cutting a, like, ham, you know, those, like, just, like, full, like, spiral hams, right? And I was cutting pieces off to make a sandwich. I was, like, 12 years old, and I chopped from that first knuckle, like, to the tip of my finger. I chopped that off <laughs> with a oh, knife. Sh- it was hanging by skin. Yo! Right? What, and What, like, through the bone? Yeah, yeah, I had to have it surgically Yay! reattached. The bone? The too? bone. Yeah, yeah, like, they reattached everything. Wait, chopped it with what? With a fucking, um... But, or not butcher knife? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, chef's knife. Just like a like an eight inch like chef's knife. Like yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Rock. And so like the bone though. So when I after I did it, I like went like this, right? Because I was like, ow, and, oh, I, was like this. and oh. I felt it moving, like in obviously not a natural way. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's probably bad. And so I like, and there was like a. a arc of blood just going across the kitchen fucking and, Dexter style yeah so I got some like paper towels and I tried to like wrap it up as best I could and my brother was home and he he just brought his friend into the kitchen to look at it and then left <laughs> my brother's older than me so he would have been of the course. adult in this situation course, right? right he came in and just looked and was like it's ah like, it's like oh. and I called my dad and my dad came home and my dad is like afraid of blood so when he came in he like immediately was like I'm doing passed out. Yeah, shit. right. And was like, oh, we're going to get you to the doctor. I'm 12. I can't like, go to the doctor on my own, right? So he takes me to the doctor, and then it was, uh, yeah, reattached. Jesus. Yeah. You have to, like, wear a cast for a while? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was, like, all bandaged up for a while. Which, actually, I mean, on the plus side, I had this, like, sort of, like, cast-type thing on it for, like, it was a long time, I felt like. it's. I mean, it's all hard to remember. That's so long ago. It felt like like maybe a couple months or something, but I, I can't be one hundred percent sure about that. But I, you know, I had to learn how to play guitar with just the my three other fingers, right? You know, so actually, like, really increased the dexterity of my pinky and ring finger while playing guitar. Wow! Hey, there you go. Of, uh, yeah, yeah, because I kept practicing. Well, through, yeah. Brian's guitar tips, everyone. Uh, no. <laughs> slice yeah. through the bone. Yeah. So to this day, by the way, I can't like really feel very much with the end of my finger. Uh-huh. <laughs> it has like almost no feeling. <laughs> 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 Jesus. Yeah. So that's my one like most serious kid injury. Okay. Well, I'm sorry for that, everybody. Um, that was like the. I, it happened to me. I think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't happen to any of you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, as uh, you know, that's th- when we get together in one place. Like we definitely have like two hours of much better conversation um, that we could have recorded, and we're down to like. Just talking about physical injuries, disgusting. Physical That's right. Injuries. You guys get the crumbs. Yeah. <laughs> look, look. Just be careful with your kitchen utensils. Yeah, all you right? should. Yeah. Keep your knife sharp. All right. That's number one rule. And then uh, watch your fingers. Watch where they're at. All right. Um, so we're talking today about how everything's looking up. How there's people out there looking out for us. How you know the powers that be are gonna keep. This job market hot. Just keep, you know, <laughs> our wages are going to keep going up. Um, you know, specialists. 
to manage. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, it's it's good to have the experts in charge. Yeah, there was this headline that was going around Twitter the other day. People had grabbed a screenshot of it, uh, which was initially funny to me because it was of a monthly review article, which, I mean, always nice to be reminded the monthly review still exists. Uh, but it was, you know, everyone just screenshot the headline that says, U.S. Federal Reserve says its goal is to get wages down. And uh, I'm sure that nobody actually read the article, but, I mean, the headline really just says what the article says. But in the article itself... Um, Ben Norton, who writes it, quotes uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell is saying, wages are running high, the highest they've run in quite some time. Employers are having difficulties filling job openings, and wages are rising at the fastest pace in many years. By moderating demand, we could see vacancies come down. By that, I mean job openings. And as a result, and they could have uh, come down fairly significantly, and I think put supply and demand at least closer together than they are, and that they will give us a chance to have lower, to get inflation, to get wages down, and then get inflation down without having to slow the economy and have a recession and have unemployment rise materially. So that was from a presser that the Fed chair was giving, right? <laughs> and I think a lot of people were shocked at the idea that the chair of the Federal Reserve would uh, just bluntly say, uh, yeah, we got to get wages down. Um, you know, people are like, masks, mask off moment, right? Um, which, you know, like you should be shocked by this, uh, but they actually say this all the time. <laughs> yeah. That's like their bread and butter. I mean, there's like an, also just like a pull quote, just like from, um, a chorus of those wanting a weaker labor market is getting louder and louder from Yahoo finance. Um, they say after the recent job numbers were released last week, bank of America analysts said in a note that they are essentially quote, rooting against the home team and hope the numbers stop being so strong. As higher wages contribute to inflation, the Federal Reserve appears to agree. Quote, Chair Powell keeps mentioning the relationship between the high level of job openings and wage price inflation, says Nicholas Colas, co-founder of Datatrek, wrote in a newsletter on Tuesday. He's not talking to investors. He's talking to corporate America. And his goal is to have companies essentially institute a hiring freeze and end the cycle of paying up for new hires. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a definite connection that's being drawn right between uh, wages going up and this concept of inflation and uh, the Federal Reserve having to do something about it. And, you know, I thought it might be interesting. If we actually probed this a little bit. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, like any good economics class, we got to begin with some definition. Right. Yeah. We got we to figure out what our terms are and things. Right. And the very first one is just the Federal Reserve itself. I know I don't, I'm just giving a brief summary because I know everybody has listened to Ending the Myth. Yep. They have listened to our episodes on the Progressive Era where we talk about how the Federal Reserve was founded. Uh, but the Federal Reserve is a central bank that essentially exists to manage capitalism, right? And to try and smooth over the edges so that the business cycle, which just means the recurring crises in capitalism, are not as severe, right? And it was created during the Progressive Era because of a long period called the Long Depression, starting in 1873, where about every five years you would have a Great Depression-level economic collapse, right? And uh, eventually they tried to create this magic. Now, every capitalist state of a certain size and sophistication has some form of central bank to manage the economy, right? Now, it takes different forms in different countries, right, because it's all about the political histories of the country. In the United States, because of our own particular sick mental illnesses, 
Uh, it is essentially a federal agency that began in utero as a fully captured institution. <laughs> um, so literally designed by bankers for finance um, that like exclusively seats members of, you know, the financial community. Uh, it is uh, made up of just like subhumanoid freaks from the University of Chicago now. Um but you know that's the particular yeah, American I, design. <laughs> I, I could, academics yeah. who are, you know, captured by yeah. the banking industry is yeah. like who usually populated. Yeah, in the past it was populated by the largest banks would literally just put their own guys, so yeah. they're usually corporate lawyers and things like that. Uh, we've moved to a level of professionalization and sophistication yeah. that now it's just the you know University of Chicago you know economist who's like the Chase Manhattan chair of yeah. economics <laughs> yeah. who gets with, the job. <laughs> that starts with Greenspan. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean Volcker too. He's, yeah, he's, yeah. he's, he's sort of an academic that comes yeah. out of the world. But yeah, you know that it's sort of that period, 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. right, where we want to have professional managers, right? You know, um, but you know, don't get it wrong in any way. These are uh, the same finance free that have always been in charge. Um, yeah, other countries have like things, crazy things like democratic control over their central banks. Ew. Not here, baby. <laughs> Not here. <laughs> but I think the next thing we need to like think a little bit about is, is like what inflation actually is. And I'm curious, Munya, since you're the only one here who uh, got like a finance degree. <laughs> uh oh. In college, like, what what do they tell you? What like inflation was and like the cause of inflation? Yeah, I mean, curiosity? usually, usually inflation was determined by, um, you know, money specifically, wow. and like you know, they use a lot of case studies. Specifically, they usually talk about like hyperinflation, but like they just call it inflation. Where it's like, oh, if you print more money, the value of the dollar goes down, and therefore, you know, like the prices will just like kind of you know go up to match the amount of money in supply is like m0 and m1 which is like the money supply right and if money supply goes up then inflation will go up right um you know there was other explanations too but in general inflation was like you know caused by just like just the money in circulation per um regular people right like if like a Mm -hmm. institution a big institution just kind of kept it in their vaults or like, for instance, the federal reserve also, um, and every federally regulated bank, um, they have to have an account with the federal reserve and to determine how much the banks lend. Um, the federal reserve has to, uh, put money into their, um, you know, fed account and then they take that money to then lend out. And so they say like, if the federal reserve puts more money into the banks, you know, um, Mm -hmm. then the banks can like, you know, lend that money out. And if they, you know, put a lot of money into the banks, then the banks lend a lot of money out and therefore then inflation will go up because everyone has money now and they're willing to spend more on it. And then, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is what people talk about when they talk about like the Fed window, right? You know, so when banks are essentially borrowing from the federal government, right, that's in theory putting money into circulation. And if the Fed window, the rates on it are super low, like 0% as it's been for about a decade, (laughs) uh, banks are going to borrow money, right? And uh, if the Fed, if the rate goes up, right, interest rate rise, the banks are going to borrow less money, yep. right, and put less money into circulation, yep. right? So it's like a fairly unless simple, people are going to borrow too, you know? Yeah, yeah. Unless yeah. you can get people to borrow at that rate, right. right? But the idea being, the further you increase the interest rate, the less likely people are to borrow, right? And right. This is sort or, of or it's going to affect the rate. Though that is like, that strikes me as like part of the um, the system they use to sort of reinforce the sort of natural uh, way of thinking about the economy. It's like, well, it's just this 
thing, like if all we do is adjust the interest rate and then therefore the natural workings of the economy, you know, yeah, proceed from there. <laughs> Whereas like, you know, you could say, well, that, that there are other ways to think about central banking, like with democratic control, where you could say, we're going to give this much money, make this much money available and it's going to be lent or we're not, you know, you could, but it, mm. they, they sort of abstract it in this way to it just being about this one tiny control that otherwise just influences the larger market forces. Yeah. And I mean, what's interesting is even that is fairly new, right? I mean, you know, discussions of inflation going back to like early 19th century economists, you know, they'll bring up like, you know, inflation can be caused by increased money supply, right? But they'll put that, like, along with a list of other factors, yeah, you know, right? right? And the big, you know, the, the big change with neoliberalism is Milton Friedman's declaration that inflation is solely the cause of money supply, right? Vice and, versa. Yeah, and so basically saying that all you need to manage something like inflation is what became known as monetary theory, right? Or, mm -hmm. you know, monetarist theory, right? Which is... Controlling interest rates. So a perfect... Thereby controlling the money supply. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like we did kind of skip over, like, the just to be, make it more clear, like, to me, that that is, like, a major way that money is printed in the American system, is money doesn't exist. A bank borrows money from the Fed based on how much actual money that they actually have they put in to their Fed account... And that, by some ratio, determines, like, the Fed loans them money. And in that, by loaning them that money, creates, print. that's printing money. Suddenly, you know, it appears in their account uh, at the Fed, and thus a shitload of money now exists. A shitload of dollars that didn't exist before now come into existence. So that's how the, that, the Fed is controlling, theoretically, one major arm of controlling the supply of dollars yeah. in the world. And they swap treasury notes with dollars. Like, you know, it's yeah. either like, you know, the Fed gives treasury notes and they like, you know, demand that, you know, banks give them dollars like to buy their treasury notes or, mm -hmm. you know, they sell treasury notes, right? Yeah. And Which is all ultimately dollars. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And a big part of the bills uh, or greenbacks it's all yeah it's all american money right yeah yeah you know whatever you want to call the unit right we're just yeah. talking money right yeah. and you know the fed chairman a big part of his job is to coordinate with the head of the treasury department right about these essentially money transfers um and uh yeah i mean more or less that is how they control the money supply right you know you pump money in through banks right that money then filters down to the public, you know, one way or another sometimes. Um, that then pumps money into the system, right, through credit, right, and then, you know, it circulates. By jacking interest rates up, you are essentially destroying money in the supply, right? You're constricting the money supply, and it's eventually going to fall you're, away. Or you're failing to reissue it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so yeah. it's being destroyed. Money's being destroyed as taxes come in. So taxes come in to the yeah. treasury. You write your tre check to the treasury, that money leaves your bank account and is burned into ash, and it either gets created again to a lesser or greater extent by the Fed loaning money to the banks or the Treasury writing checks itself to pay for shit. Mm -hmm. You know, so when government employees get a check from the Treasury, that that's money 
or or contractors or companies building something at some point the treasury is writing a check to pay for that and that's money coming into existence so you know there's there's uh multiple ways they put money in the world but a, a huge one is yeah uh that has a major effect is the fed yeah and the fed effects. and that's like the relationship with that is the feds um balance sheet so like they'll buy up assets and in in exchange like give them cash so like you know they'll buy you know, treasury bills usually from banks, but they'll also just buy just other, just like fixed income assets. And Isn't that like relatively that, new? Yeah, it's relatively new. That's I mean, only like post two thousand eight, well, right? Or am I? Wrong I mean, well, what's post two thousand eight is the extent of their buying. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, for longer than that, they've been like actually buying assets. Longer than that, they've been buying assets, but not the types of assets that they would. It's usually strictly like you know treasury notes that they would buy. Okay. Um, so, before yeah. buying up. Buying up money that's in circulation. That's in, yeah, basically. But yeah. now, but since 2008, with like uh, quantitative easing mm-hmm. and other other things, it's mm-hmm. like they're actually buying st- stocks and shit. Is that what they're uh, some? Doing? They're buying mortgage-backed securities, especially. So they're like actually just buying like more like fixed income assets uh, and like some stocks, but like mostly they're interested in fixed income. Yeah, and. You know, to give people an idea of like how much money we would say like this is how money is put into circulation, how it, you know the money supply is expanded from 2008 to 2012, just via quantitative easing, basically just through transfers through the Fed window, right? So banks just coming up and being give me a zero percent loan, right? Uh, they essentially through QE, they spent 14 to 27 trillion dollars. Nobody really knows. <laughs> Um, right, we're just you know sent out the Fed window to audit the financial oh, sector. Yeah, uh, I, ironically, I mean it's so funny when people say that the Fed is audited by law every year. Yeah, <laughs> like it's very heavily audited. Uh, yeah. The thing about the you know the uh, the amount of quantitative easing, why we don't know it, is that uh, nobody actually asked. Um, yeah, and uh, they just were giving money away hand over fist, and nobody really kept track. So. so- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to talk about, so to put it in the context of yeah, like what the interest rate is post two thousand eight as a response to the collapse and the collapse of assets and the fucking economy, they dropped the interest rate banks could borrow this money from essentially to zero. Yeah. I mean, was it actually yeah. literally zero for a minute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was literally yeah, zero it for was, like four yeah. years. So banks could go like, well. You know, a 0% interest loan is something pretty much, uh, you know, you should always take out. Right? Always. Someone's course, offering always. you a permanent, a, a fixed rate 0% loan, no matter who you are. Should always just, take, just it. take it out. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean. And there's almost always. It's never getting, it's never going to grow in size. It's just free money that you could have now instead of later. So. Yeah. yeah. And there's almost always going to be some minor amount of inflation over time. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you take a 0% loan, right. And you pay it back five years down the road or whatever, you are essentially paying less than you borrowed. Yeah, right? You've made so money. You've made money. It's, it's easy money. That, and they were also buying, I mean, this, so we talk about, in theory, the money trickles down. What was actually happening between 2008 and 2012 was that banks were borrowing this money, and instead of using it to, um, you know, ease homeowners' burdens or to lend out or anything like that, they used it to buy treasury bonds and engage in financial speculation. So, if you buy a treasury bond, say at a return of three percent on money that you borrowed at zero percent, right? Free money. Yeah. Right? Or maybe you decide to go to the real casino and you go, you know, invest it in, you know, some private equity arm of your bank, right? Uh, you know, maybe you can get even bigger returns. Now, this maybe gets to the point of 
we've discussed this so far through like the lens of the textbook, you know, of how what inflation is and how it gets handled and all that kind of stuff. But what happened in 2008 was banks were given 0% loans through the Fed, right? Through quantitative easing, right? But homeowners uh, through things like HAMP and HARP uh, did not have their interest rates reduced, right? So Timothy Geithner specifically intervened over and over and over again to keep interest rates at exactly what they were on paper, right? On the yeah. contracts. Now, you could say, but oh, but as we know now, the president and the executive have no power to do anything. But in reality, shit tons of home loans and most of the ones that were underwater are, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac under control of the executive branch. All the Obama White House had to do was have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac restructure those home loans based off the current interest rate. Right. Which makes Which sense. would have reduced people's interest a, dramatically. A lot of the big problem was that these loans had adjustable fucking rates. Yeah, that it ballooned and so, now people couldn't make payments. So that theoretically were like based on, you know, the the sort of PR logic of that is like, well, yeah, you know, you're getting in on this adjustable rate because rates are low and you're, if you knew what you're doing, which no one did when they bought these, the... I guess justification would be well you're going to get this low rate and you're going and the bet you're making again no one really understood this when they were doing it but the, if you wanted to if someone was trying to pitch it to you more honestly it would be like you're betting that interest rates are going to remain uh low but then of course they just jacked them up when they could anyway because they could and they just ratcheted them up but then when you know theoretically if the banks are getting 0% interest that should you would think trickle down to those mortgages. They could say, yeah, hey, your interest rate is now 1%. Yeah. Um, and they just didn't. Yeah, the general theory... The banks certainly didn't, but Eaton nor, nor did Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Yeah, the general theory is that by setting the interbank interest rate, which is what the Fed does, like the interbank loan interest rate, that they're essentially setting interest rates, right? That's, yeah. that's the economic theory, yeah. right? But banks can do whatever the fuck they want. And so what the federal government did by not restructuring all those home loans was they told homeowners, you have to take the full brunt of the crisis and pay the banks. Meanwhile, through a backdoor, we're going to pump the banks full of free money, right? So they essentially transferred the crisis and totally to, totally over to homeowners mm -hmm. and liquidated homeowners yeah. in order to uh, have the banks become solvent, right? Now – Hilariously, we're going to find out the Federal Reserve had a part to play in uh, getting all these homers into these bad loans in the first place. But maybe now is a uh, good time to go a little more uh, in depth into sort of what they mean by too much money in the money supply. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because you could say all the rampant speculation that led to the 2008 crisis meant that there was already too much money in the money supply, so I dropped the interest rates down to zero, right? Seems like a little counterintuitive. Some people were pointing that out at the time. And yeah. Like, maybe we should be jacking interest rates up <laughs> instead of dropping them to zero. Right, because every market was super hot. Yeah. Housing, sure, but, like, stocks, like, everything, because people had uh, fucking money to spend. People, the if the interest, rate, the interest rates were low, so... You, banks could borrow even before they were zero. You know they've been mm -hmm. low for a long time. So you you can pump money into wherever, and then you know money. We know money when you got a lot of excess money, it's got to go somewhere. So it was pumping every market yeah. up. Yeah, well, that and the Fed had encouraged people to borrow against their home value, which was something mm -hmm. that was not historically a thing that you would encourage homeowners to do. 
But the you know Greenspan, Alan Greenspan himself, who was the Fed chair uh, for most of the buildup to the housing crisis, who most of our lives hilariously, yeah, I mean for twenty straight yeah, years, yeah. Uh, hilariously left right before the crisis happened. Interesting, yeah. Um, but <laughs> gave himself a little early retirement. But um, the uh, he had encouraged Hummer specifically to borrow heavily because he's like, look, interest rates are down, home values will only go up, so you're you know you will co- have this constantly increasing asset. So you should just borrow at will. Yeah, right? I mean, it was you know? a very popular take. You know, yeah, like that was not a fringe take at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, just treat it as an open tap, right? Yeah. Um, well, and if, you know, it makes sense, right? Like if you're getting you know, a lot of people like either on their first home purchase or their refinance are getting these like awful adjustable rate mortgages. But like, you know, if you were locking in like a low rate, like, hey, yeah, fuck, great. Why wouldn't you take the money now? Um, spend it uh in whatever invest course this whole period the bush years people are being encouraged to also you know regular ass people are being encouraged to invest in the stock market yep. essentially like your regular ass like lower middle class homeowner is being encouraged through all of this sort of uh advice you're getting both from your bank from the political establishment from the fucking news is saying invest in stocks on leverage like it's the 1920s you know like saying that house that you have half paid off uh get that money that you put into it back out um so that you owe all the money on the house uh (laughs) yeah yeah. and take that money and help us pump up the stock market no it, it it was true it was it was extremely common in 2007 right for people to owe more money on their house than the original purchase price from 10 years ago or whatever, yeah. right? Uh, that was extremely common. Um, and so what that meant is that when the 2008 crisis happened, right, the asset positions of all these homeowners, right, which were either stock or their house or both, right, collapsed. So the assets they had to borrow against and that they had as collateral were gone, wiped out, Right. At the same time, they were being held to not only higher interest rates than, say, the Fed interest rate, but a lot of them, because they had adjustable rate mortgages, all that kind of stuff, were being held to extreme interest rates, 10, 15 percent, 20 percent in some cases, right? So they were having to make Shit, this massive, should be illegal. Yeah. Basically, yeah. loan sharks take out smaller interest than most yeah. banks were at that time. The, the VIG out of control. Yeah. Whatever that is. And yeah. also something, <laughs> that, something that we know it's was like, being done illegally. Like we know Wells Fargo was was lying to people about the fact that they were in adjustable rate yeah. loans. Nobody right? understood they were just telling them they shit. were in it. Right. And then they were. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, we also know that they were illegally written. Did the Obama administration do anything about any of that? No. Yeah. Even after. And that's the, the real criminality, like, is already happening. But then. They drop interest rate to zero for the banks, which is, yeah. again, like if you were explaining to someone how the adjustable rate mortgage works and like you would say like, well, you know, yeah, sure. Interest rates economy wide go up. Yours is going to go up. They go down. Yours is going to go down. You're yeah. betting it's going to go down. Yeah. But that didn't happen. Yeah. That was just a lie. Yeah. The banks can do what they want. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Tim, and like I said, I mean, this is the thing. Timothy Geithner is stepping in every step of the way to ensure that homeowners are in the, caught in the debt trap and that the banks aren't, right? So essentially, he's switching the onus of the crisis from the banks that created it to the homeowners who are now going to suffer from it. Now, this gets to a major point. These crises and things like that, we like to picture the economy as if it happens in this natural sphere. No, they're the, they are 
the creation of individual choices. These are political decisions that are getting made. Mm-hmm. Timothy Geithner in the Federal Reserve, you know, at that time, uh, it's not quite y'all, it's Ben Bernanke. So Timothy Geithner and Ben Bernanke are making the choice to fuck over the working class. Ben Bernanke, the wise old sage, the scholar <laughs> of the Great Depression. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Who was basically like, what if we did it again? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, you know, the problem with the Great Depression was we didn't take enough of people's assets away. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what's so great is like, if you read the accounts, and this is something I got obsessed with. Like, so I read every book to come out in the next like uh, five or six years after. Um, uh, 2008 of like everybody's like account of all that going mm-hmm. down and what comes through is a Bernanke just being like kind of ha- a hapless like gosh look how did I get myself in this position in history I know what this all means I know what's going to happen yeah but I guess my my historical role here is to have a mopey face and go like we're going to fuck all these people over like in the Great Depression and I guess the one thing mistake we're not going to make is letting the banks fail yeah you know what we're going to do differently is foam the runway for the banks yeah actual words yeah Um, used by timothy geithner for the how they were going to play on this yeah and and then that's what we're going to do different that's what we're and i'm going to be there to witness it with the knowledge like that was ben bernanke like in those meetings in those rooms going like hmm uh Yep, I've written like whole books and had like an academic career talking about like how the Hoover administration let the let everyone get fucked and li- let all the farmers and everybody else get liquidated and uh, how bad that was and how like uh, the Hoover administration should have done more faster earlier mm-hmm. like and how Ro- the Roosevelt ad- administration came in with a mandate to like, you know, try some shit. Now we... You know, we we don't have to learn that a second that lesson a second time. And he just sit, sat there with that fucking mopey face and went like, <laughs> gosh, yeah, I guess, oof, boy, this is the reality. We just have to fuck people again. But at least I guess we'll save the banks. <laughs> I, grand irony, because, you know, Herbert Hoover, too. I mean, one of the great uh, sort of questions of like economic history is like Herbert Hoover, this guy in the 20s, who was like the great coordinator of humanitarian aid and all this kind of stuff is becomes the ultimate villain of just letting everybody like go into absolute destitute poverty and uh, during the Great Depression. Uh, so I like that we get our mere image of it, but, you know, always repeated as farce with Ben Bernanke <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? you know, decades later. But yeah, so I mean, you know, uh, the foam the runway thing was Timothy Geithner's sort of way of wording, you know, their plan for, you know, uh, responding to the 2008 crisis. Uh, and David Diane, who's an economist, has this great like quote about that where he basically is like, you know, he's like, the foam, that's the that's indebted homeowners and that jumbo jet about to land on them and smash them all. That's finance capital, right? Yeah. Being saved from its own fucking hijinks, mm-hmm. right? By all these now crushed homeowners whose assets have just been stripped, right? And so it's a hostage situation <laughs> is the logic they went they yeah. went into it. They're like, look, man, like they're, the phrase, you know, too big to fail comes out of this. They're like, look, we can't, yeah. this will be really bad unless we save these banks. It is like a giant jumbo jet coming into crash. And, you know, we have to save it or else it'll be that bad. But, like, then that was the justification for just fucking everybody over, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, and I mean... Somehow, oh, it'll be even worse, you know? Well, and Eric Holder, who was attorney general under the Obama administration... 
like literally just voiced this out when uh, he was questioned, I think in a Senate hearing about why he had chosen not to charge any banks for any of the numerous crimes they committed <laughs> leading up to the crisis. And he basically explained, you know, we looked at it and some companies are so large that if we were to bring criminal charges against them and carry out some sort of prosecution, that it would actually tank the economy. So therefore, we can't do that, right? That was the official position of the Obama administration, which literally was, yeah, they're they're uh, too big, they're too powerful. Sorry, they get to do what they want. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, you as little individual, you who owes a bunch of money to the bank now, uh, you don't have any political power. So guess who gets stepped on, right? Now, this sort of gets to the interesting point about you know the sort of textbook you know Friedmanite you know, explanation of if inflation is too much money into the money supply, uh, how does that happen and what do you do about it, right? And Friedman's classical explanation, this has been the explanation for the entire neoliberal era, is the way you end up with too much money in the money supply is because workers' wages have gone up, right? And this is like a critical thing to understand about how they view inflation. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that prices have gone up. What they mean is the worker's share of GDP, right? So the worker's share of production is increasing relative to profits, right? To the share of capital, right? That to them is inflation. Yep. And the Federal Reserve monitors this very closely, right? Paul Volcker, like famously in the 80s, used to carry around note cards in his pockets at all times that had the upcoming schedule of every union negotiation, contract negotiation coming up with notes on whether he thought the contract was going to end up with the workers having more money or less money, right? And he would raise rates accordingly in order to put pressure to shove wages down, right? Yeah. So by their view, right, so this is the sort of textbook, right, is – Workers, the share of the national economy that goes to workers' wages, if that increases, that is inflation, right? In order to resolve that, you increase interest rates to force a recession to decrease workers' bargaining power to shove the wages back down again so that the relative you know, ratio of the national economy that goes to capital versus workers always favors capital. On some level, though, they are saying that – that's what causes price price inflation, which is what you know we would say yeah. inflation is. Yeah, more money into workers' pockets means they have more spending power, and so they'll just like spend more money, which mm-hmm. will then raise prices because the market will adjust to that. So uh, in in a, that's the that's their explanation, yeah. right? So and in a, I think this is like you know the way conservative ideology like functions is to like launder like other shit, right? Mm-hmm. Like and so. The, the Friedmanite thing of saying like, well, inflation is when is caused by workers having too much money and inflation is bad because basically because Nazi Germany, you know, because like inflation Yeah, right. Inflation leads to hyperinflation, leads to the collapse of society and authoritarian regimes, or something. And this they also horrifying- have a they have a moral thing, which we should also bring up. That's very Protestant too. That inflation represents decadence. Oh, right? yes. it's not a Protestant value of thrift and yeah. whatever. So right? which is yeah. which is the which part is really that- important for guys like Alan Greenspan, by the way, who was an actual member of a cult. So yeah. you know, like that's important. And and you know? and something. The, also, this is the idea that they were able. This is the half of the idea, the ide- ideological 
like pitch for this shit that they were able to sell Car- Carter on, who's also a weird Protestant. Yeah, yeah. Then he went, yeah, that makes sense to me. But like, it it's key to understand that like, it's laundering this idea. It's saying like, yes, inflation is bad because it leads to, or is it an example of decadence and can lead to bad things politically, things that like we don't even really need to spell out. It's like Nazism, okay? And other just like, social collapse in other ways like um so if you have any inflation at all but really that's just laundering the the real meat of it which is like yeah is share of the is worker share of production yeah yeah so yeah now that would be of course the official sort of explanation again at one level below you know when you get past econ 101 right and you get to that next level down into the inner circle is that like look um the worker share wages go up. They then have extra money to spend, right? So prices rise at the same time, right? Now, the thing is, is they're breaking down what is essentially a series of political agreements down to the simplicity of naturally occurring supply and demand. But what that hides, right, what that's obscuring is the element of prices that is a choice, right? Prices don't go up because of some natural, it's not like the tides, right? You know, it's not because the moon's in the current position. Prices go up because individual capitalists choose to raise prices. Now, there, you know, the Friedman explanation would be, well, yeah, well, if workers' wages go up, then the rate of profit for an individual company naturally will decline. And that company then will have to raise prices to keep the rate of profit the same or higher or to increase it, right? What this implies is that Basically, the people who run the national economy assume that the rate of profit for capital, right, for their end of the bargain, can't go anywhere but up, right? It can yeah. stay stagnant or go up, but it can never decrease, right? So take all that in, right? What does that mean? That means that monetary theory at its heart says that, one, inequality is not only inevitable, but is extremely desirable, and we should actually move constantly towards more and higher inequality, right? If workers' wages go up, we have to crush that. The lower the percentage of the national share of GDP they have, the better, right? Now, we can describe whether that makes the economy functional, right? right. But that's not what they're doing. They're not involved in that kind of project. And so that, This is where we get to the big point. They're involved in a political project. Yes, and so that's how, you know, they've laundered that the real goal here which is like maintain um the rate of profit and inequality that's what we're after we launder that through fears about hyperinflation which is like you know a staple of american politics like inflation is since 1970 or so like inflation is the worst possible nightmare for again reasons of social collapse uh political chaos and uh, moral decadence of the working class, right? Like getting overfed and lazy. Yeah. And sound familiar mm. in the current discourse. Yeah, right. right? And you know? so, you know, uh, those ideas are laundered. Uh, that, that's what you hear. That's what you've heard all of our lives about, like, why you can't spend money on projects. Only it comes out when they're, um, they forget to do the laundry that's like, oh, uh, wages can't go up. Or like in the rare circumstances that wages are actually going up uh, over the last 40 years, which hasn't been the case, they've been flat. Then it comes out like, oh, we need to uh, get wages down like we're seeing now. But most of the time, 
they're preempting that by saying, well, we can't have any inflation for these other reasons, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, Alan Greenspan, he, you know, he provides a good sort of window into this world, right? Because he was Fed chair for 20 years, right? Appointed by Reagan, reappointed by Clinton twice, reappointed by George W. Bush, right? Weird. I thought there was a, a hatred between the two parties <laughs> and like disagreement over these policies. But anyways, there were times, particularly in the mid 90s, where there was inflationary pressure and all the signs in the world of a market that's heating up, right? That people that the Fed's supposed to be paying attention to, right? And cooling down so they don't end up with bubbles and things like that. There was these signs in beginning in 94, you know, Alan Greenspan was in front of the Senate trying to explain why he wasn't going to raise interest rates and why he was keeping them at record lows around 1%, you know, which was record at that time. We've mm. blown past that now. Mm. But um, why he wasn't doing anything. And he basically explained in no uncertain terms that the reason why these uh, bubbles weren't necessarily a problem is that the wage side of the GDP was remaining low, right? There was no pressure, you know, despite employment numbers going up, right? Unemployment was dropping towards the late 90s. Despite all of that, there was no pressure from higher wages to be concerned about. You know, he writes a report to Bill Clinton in 97, I believe, where he basically tells him because of concern over losing their job, increased employment insecurity, right? Workers are afraid to ask for higher wages, Right. So even though unemployment is reaching record lows of the past 20 years, uh, there's no pressure on wages to go up. Therefore, we can keep the Fed policy exactly where it's at. Right. OK, so that's the Fed has seen inflation happening through the 90s. Right. They've seen the market heating up. We are 1997. We're we're going to smash into the fucking tech bubble exploding. Right. It almost exploded prior to that. But we we're saved by the Asian monetary crisis and the um, stripping of Eastern Europe, <laughs> right, of all of its assets, right? But the Fed didn't act, right? So, well, also, this, so this gets to the point of, like, it's not just inflation, right? So that's yeah. the thing, too, is, like, inflation alone won't trigger the Fed to act. And also, it's not correlated to rising wages, right? And because, it's not correlated yes, to rising wages. Wages have been basically flat since 1970 at this point, and yet there's been... Uh, at some points elevated, but largely steady low inflation mm. with certain spikes at times when at, uh, when either there's like supply crises or, um, you know, bubbles happening. There's been it's raised, but like oh, an average over the previous, you know, 30 years of like a steady low level of inflation without any wage growth. Yeah, so I mean, I think at this point, it's probably good to maybe talk a little about just inflation generally and what causes it. So I'd said earlier that, you know, going all the way back to like the early 19th century, they would say like, oh, yeah, increased money supply can lead to inflation. They'd always give a lot of other answers as to what could also cause inflation. And if you look back at the 1970s, which is what triggers, you know, in theory, the Volcker shock is, you know, the stagflation of the United States, right? Stagnant economy, you know, monetary inflation, right? No economist can show how wages had anything to do with that. Like, I mean, there's almost no evidence that wages had any impact on inflation in the 70s. Things they weren't, they stopped, they stopped raising. Yeah, they basically begun declining in 73, right? Yeah. So by the time we're hitting the height of the inflationary cycle, wages have been declining for years. What things that did impact it, the U.S. floating the dollar, right? Breaking the Bretton Woods agreement to, you know, back the dollar with gold, right? That's one thing that led to, 
a lot of speculative pressure on the dollar and in currency markets, right? Other things, the U.S. spending on the Vietnam War, which was creating a sort of natural inflation just over time, right? Well, that, I mean, in a way, yeah. that is, you know, increase. That's increasing the money supply, but yeah. it's not wages. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, that had also created inflationary pressure, right? That also led to increased speculation in currency markets because people were looking at internationally, looking at the U.S. spending in the Vietnam War, and being like. I don't think the dollar is going to be worth what they think it is, right? And we're betting against it, right? Everybody's betting against the dollar, right? Uh, Similar because the dollar, um, the dollar's pegged too high, right? It's got to come down, right? Thus, thus they start trading in for the gold. Yeah, they try trading in for the gold until Nixon actually sees them do it, and it's like, what the fuck are you guys? It goes to the Treasury Department, livid, and it's like, what the fuck are you doing? You don't give them the gold, you idiots. I know we said we would, but you don't actually do the thing. When you're the imperial power, you don't actually have to honor any agreement. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you say it's a bluff. You say yeah. you can buy, you can trade in your dollars for gold for as long as that works. Yeah. As long as people really aren't doing it because they believe the va- in the value of the dollar, the moment that starts happening, the the moment yeah. someone stops believing the value of the dollar, as you said, because of like the insane like imperial uh, quagmire of Vietnam and you know uh, European powers with uh, do- a lot of dollars in reserve mm-hmm. start going, hey, that gold's starting to look nice, then you know it's time to call the bluff and say like oh just kidding yeah and by the 70s too there's a lot of talk about a european european currency union now that's not going to come into fruition until the 90s but because of that talk there's a lot of people who are starting to think maybe i don't need to have a you fe- i don't need to have a foreign reserve that's all dollars right because europe is a big enough industrial power it certainly has an imperial past right all these kind of things it can be an anchor for a new reserve currency that you could use right and so a lot of countries are like, you know, maybe it's time to start speculating on this dollar, right? Uh, and a lot of people are just doing it for sport, right? Just millionaires fucking, you know, destroying currency markets for sport. The other big thing that happens in the 70s, too, is the creation of OPEC, right? Yeah. So energy is energy markets are a huge driver of inflation, right? Because they are literally controlling the supply of the world's most important commodity, right? Every country has to buy oil. Every country has to use oil. It's not a luxury commodity. It's not anything like that, right? It's constant every day. It's necessary yeah. to every Can't go a week single without it. Yeah. bit of the functioning of commerce and life. It's yeah. everything. Yeah, modern society literally will not function without oil, yeah. right? And so because of that, oil is the most important commodity traded on any market, right? And the creation of OPEC means that you now have de facto price control over oil, right? Because they're not going to fight with each other. They're going to set prices, right? In so doing... Yeah, I mean, like, for listeners learning, like, OPEC is basically like a cartel of countries who um, yeah. are oil-producing countries uh, who get together and set the price of oil. Yeah, including basically everybody in the Middle East, Venezuela, uh, I think there's a few other countries. I think there's some countries in Africa that are part of it, too. Mm-hmm. But um, all the major producers, yeah. right? The Outside only, of the United States. Yeah. The which o- is a, also a major producer. Yeah, but, although it's slowing down by the 70s, yeah. right? And the other major producer is the Soviet Union, which in the 1970s is, of course, you know, can't, can't buy from them, right? So, you know, and also the Soviet Union is not exactly going to throw a life raft to the United States on this, <laughs> right? 
So, you know, oil as a commodity price increases dramatically, right? Leading to what you see in movies all the time, right? I think in Licorice Pizza, they have big scenes about it, too, which is the gas crisis in the 1970s and things yeah. like that, right? You got, like, big lines of people, like, just, like, yeah. sitting in cars for hours waiting for gas. Yeah, and essentially this is, like, you know, OPEC, one, doing an embargo on the United States for its policy regarding Israel, but also... <laughs> Trying to reset the market for oil, the U.S. had always set the price, right? And, of course, it set it to its own advantage. And these countries are now saying, if this is a resource we're pulling out of our ground, we actually want to get something for it and not just have, like, the Gettys get rich off it, right? Yeah. Or the Rockefellers strip us of all our assets, right? So, so they organize. They organize. They organize. They do, set a price. They do an organizing drive. They form a union. And the thing about this is when you set prices for oil— what you're actually doing is setting prices for commodities all across the spectrum because everything needs oil. To be produced. Yeah. Every yep. other thing every, that is produced. Every plastic has oil in it. Every bit of manufacturing has an oil energy input, right? So fucking agricultural products. Full of oil. Especially, I mean, always because everything, I mean, you need to run the equipment, the supply chain, but also, you know, after the Green Revolution, like the inputs into the ground are 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 coming out of oil as well, you know? Yeah, all your fertilizers are oil-based, right? You know, like, it, it oil isn't everything. So, you know, uh, the idea of getting off an oil economy by just not driving cars, right, which is certainly a thing we should do, but you don't trick yourself. You're not getting out of fossil fuels that way, right? It's, it's intensely a part of modern manufacturing, right? Um, again, a choice, right? That was a choice we made, right? Because the U.S. had a lot of oil reserves, yeah. right? Had a lot of oil <laughs> reserves and... Uh, may especially after it's when it you know conveniently had to conquer the world in World War II, like set itself up to control a lot of the yeah. rest of <laughs> the oil producing world. Then that's what OPEC basically is: is like getting one over on America, yeah. going like, ha ha ha, we uh, you actually have been controlling our oil markets all this time, but we realized like. If we all if we got together, like we can't have any political at some point, they re, all these countries realize like they have no political freedom from the American empire. They really can't make any decisions, even though they have this ex, extremely like necessary, valuable thing that they're giving at a price basically set by American policymakers. And they say to themselves, hey, we can't do this. We can't fuck with America alone. But mm -hmm. if we all got together, we could we could make policy. And actually, you know, and that's what they do. And they do it very successfully. And they and they do it with fucking balls, too, because, like, it's they, a bold they, it's a bold fucking move to not just like they begin OPEC with the embargo, which is crazy, is insane. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's um, <laughs> ballsy. Move. This is and I mean, it's driven by, you know, uh, 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 Faisal in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. um, just a, a man of incredible like moxie like yeah. luckily like, all his kids got it too <laughs> <laughs> um like like they yeah it's crazy to be like to think this to just have the confidence that this would work that you're not just yeah. gonna like threaten it that you're not just gonna like make like some speeches and say like you know what we should we should gain political independence over and like ask for like a little bit better terms. Right. Like using it as a bargaining chip, you know, basically. Yeah. Like that's like leverage to like, oh, we could do this. And giving yeah. 
thus giving the Empire time to react and shit mm-hmm. and like for the CIA to launch a coup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about against various yeah, places, yeah, right? Yeah. To like yeah. to pick people yeah. away to go in and convince places not to join you in this. Instead, yeah. they just like came out and said, uh, "We're an oil mafia now, and we're starting to fuck you today, yeah. so that tomorrow." Y- we're all going to be in charge. Huge blunder by the CIA. How did they not know that that was coming? Uh, I I don't think that people saw the embargo. Like, I mean, they would have had to know that obviously conversations were being had about forming OPEC. But I just assume they always thought that they were probably going to be at the table of it. Yeah, right. And I don't think they saw that embargo coming as something that would actually happen. And Because as the why empire, would you, like... Why would you believe a, that? It's a crazy bold thing to do. When it's you've so always far controlled beyond. these other countries, right? right. So it's yeah, like, right. It's, it's so outside the realm of the past, right? Yeah. But it just, you know. Yeah, you these countries it, are you know? all puppets of America. Yeah. All of them. Yeah, they're not like, uh, you know, <laughs> like nationalists who are trying to, like, you know, rein in their... That's the thing. It's like the sounds too. Yeah, they're not... It's yeah. like the sounds of communists or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, so, you know, I think, that, <laughs> I think they just fell through, like, a little blind spot, right? Now... The importance of this to the United States was then highlighted by immediately, you know, once the embargo, you know, came into being, that basically the U.S. and Britain immediately began planning an invasion of Saudi Arabia to occupy huge portions of the Middle East, which is what the U.S. then brought to the bargaining table to end the embargo. Essentially, it was at the threat of, you know, the end of a gun, right? But what we're seeing in the 70s, right? So they do in the embargo, but what we're seeing in the 70s is because of the relative decline of the American empire— we're seeing a realignment of forces internationally, right? right? So we're seeing Europe try and break away from dollar hegemony, right? We're seeing, you know, oil-producing countries in the Middle East and Latin America start to flex on the United States and force a re, you know, arrangement of the previous deal that they, they had had to strike, you know, under threat of a gun with the United States post-World War II, right? So the whole post-World War II alignment is being changed, Right. And that's also going to happen domestically, right? So that that is what causes inflation. It has nothing to do with wages, right? But that's what causes inflation. Domestically, you know, there was a lot of complaints because basically wages had maxed out by 1972, but they had, that had been preceded by the highest years of wage growth ever seen, right? So the four years prior to 1972, there was almost 7% wage growth year over year, right? The highest payment for unemployment payments was 1969, right? The lowest unemployment duration in American history, right, is in 1968, right? So this period right here at that juncture between the 60s and the 70s is essentially where workers in the United States, just through their sheer, you know, working bargaining power, right, are in the best possible position they've ever been. And specifically, a big part of the change is in black workers like having mm-hmm. any power at all politically or economically because of the changes in law and the civil rights movement like yeah, yeah it's connected like, to the civil rights movement yeah definitely that you know um are becoming like marginally less exploitable and thus mm-hmm. like you know are able to like be more at the table in the uh union negotiations and like you know demanding like a a bigger share a, a closer to equal share and that has a big effect when like you've been ruthlessly exploiting like 10% of your population for you know the last 100 years and they start to have any power at all that has yeah. like an effect you know well in the spending spree of Vietnam too meant that basically 
we were approaching the closest thing that America's, you know, had since World War II to like full employment. I mean, we can talk about what that means, but you know, we were reaching that point, right? Meaning that uh, there was no reserved army of the unemployed, which is typically what gets used to bring workers' wages down. That was drying up, right? And so companies were actually having to, you know, uh, compete to hire workers. They're having a hard time finding people, right? Workers were getting mouthy at work because they knew they couldn't be fired, right? Those kind of things. By the way, does any of this sound familiar in any way? Mm-hmm. Right? These kind of things are starting to happen, right? And companies were being very clear that they did not like this, right? Now, here's a, a quote from uh, the chair or the head of the New York Federal Reserve, right, which is the most important. So the Federal Reserve is broken up in different branches, right? There's a national chair, right? And then each individual branch has a chairman. And the New York Fed, of course, is the most important of those individual chapters, right? So in 1970, uh, Alfred Hayes, you know, he says, quote, the outlook for major contract negotiations in 1970 is disturbing. Some moderate rise in unemployment is a necessary condition to checking the inflationary spiral. This is another way of saying the slowdown is what we have been trying desperately to achieve. Let's not reverse it before it has had some results. Right. So basically, he's saying that the Fed is trying to invoke some sort of recession. Right. Now we get into the sort of political element. Unfortunately for the Federal Reserve, the guy in charge of the country at the time is one Richard Milhouse Nixon, <laughs> who, uh, uh, you know, among his many, many faults, uh, is actually a good, like, a smart politician, at least. Yeah. Right? Like, right. you know, a, a good, a, smart is whatever, a you politician, right? Yeah. Like, you know, someone who does politics. Yeah, yeah. Politics, been in the fucking gutters doing politics for the last 50 years, um, knows what's up. Yeah, and an actual psychopath, right? And right. so when the Fed comes to him with this shit, he tells him get the fuck out. Like, so basically Nixon leading all the way up to the 72 election is being bugged constantly about how, like, look, we're going to have to do something to, uh, you know, slow growth. Essentially, we got jack up interest rates, right? All this kind of stuff. And Nixon is basically just telling him to go eat shit also, because he's smart. He realizes if he does that, he's not going to get reelected in 72. He actually institutes price control. Also, on, <laughs> they almost all quit because of <laughs> also on some level. And I mean, you see this with Nixon on a lot of subjects like, you know, he's he's sympathetic to the needs of business, but also like is on some level interested in governing. Like he doesn't like, you know, labor unions and doesn't like like mm. the power of the working class growing. But like on some level, like is interested in like America functioning kind of in a way that isn't insane, you know, like, so he's like, well, yeah, he has a vision for how it should function. Right. Yeah. Unlike, you know, anybody that's been elected probably since yeah. he has yeah. like a vision of how yeah. it should work. Right. Right. Including economically. And like to him, like not only just politically, does it sound insane to like induce a recession to drive down wages? He's like, you know, he's thinking like, yeah, I get it. Like we don't want the share of profit to be falling, but like you need to find another way to to deal with that and not, you know, without tanking the wages and life, uh, the, you know, living conditions of the working class. Like he, he's the kind of the, like, let's find an accommodation kind of like uh, capital manager, you know? Yeah. Nixon also hates everybody in government. <laughs> um, yeah. He's created his own, as they joked at the time, shadow white house, right. Which is his own group of advisors. A lot of them are not even like any official part of the state, right. Or any official part <laughs> of cabinet or anything like that. And I think some fed, res- I, I think other people in government, like people in the federal reserve and stuff, are a little, uh, everybody in Washington is aware of the type of man that Richard Nixon is, yeah. right? So when he tells you to fuck off, they're like, 
we should probably fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> like, 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 I don't know if this is the guy that you really like uh, cross the line on. Uh, you, you might find yourself thrown out of a helicopter somewhere. Or you kick it. You, you go like, okay, we don't go through that route. Now we kick yeah. it up to a higher level. Yeah. You know, yeah. We start colluding to do what yeah. we're going to do on a higher level. Yeah. You know? and, and that actually does happen. I mean, you know, businesses, particularly agribusiness, uh, begins both withholding product, right, you know, and mm-hmm. like jack, trying to jack up prices, which is why Nixon then puts in price controls. Alan Greenspan, by the way, is in Nixon's official cabinet and uh, is like threatening to quit at this time because <laughs> he's so mad. Uh, Greenspan hilariously, I think, gets thrown out of his cult at this time, too. He, like Greenspan is an actual cult member. Like, why did, why, like uh, what, what type of cult? So Ayn Rand had like a cult. Yeah. yeah, she had like a cult, right? She was the leader of it. And, you know, some people might say these are enthusiastic believers. They are not. Like, it's all the functions of a cult. Like, she used to fuck all the members and stuff. Oh, and, like, wow. yeah, yeah. Um, Alan Greenspan probably got up in that, dude. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. He like, got some rusty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. He got, he got in that <laughs> Rand business. But, you know, like, you know, it, it was, like, basically functionally a cult. Like, you, there was all these precepts that you'd have to follow, right, mm-hmm. to the T. And if you didn't, Ayn Rand would, like, throw you out and would have these, like, official, like, signing things to, like, have everybody thrown out. So there was a guy... Down to weird shit, like, uh, you can't smoke, but she can. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Like, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, just straight up <laughs> cult nonsense. Yeah, yeah she right, would right. apparently do these things where she would read her missives to the members <laughs> and they'd all have to sit on the floor. Keep going, these are fucking adult men. Yeah, but... Like, uh, like these are who, adults. Who's, like, these... who's comprising this cult? Is it, like... Economists. Uh, like, yeah. all economists? Econ- liber- like, yeah. Libertarians, basically. Like, libertarian, libertarian economists. economists. Yeah, yeah. 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 There's, there's, like, some other people in there, but, like, Bus- largely libertarian types, economists. types, you know, right. like, you know, you know, yeah. But, yeah, they would all sit on the floor like children and she would, like, read her missives to them and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's really, like, fucking crazy. Um, and I think it was about the time that, you know, he's with the Nixon administration that he's, like, kind of forced out of the cult. But, because uh, he's in the Nixon administration? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, like, very much a no-no. That's government. Because that's government, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know. But, uh, <laughs> but the point being is, like, the, the Fed already at this point, you know, because of Milton Friedman's influence and the University of Chicago's influence, right, uh, graduates that study under Freeman are now like the chair of every economics department in America, right? By the early seventies, um, you know, so their, their influence is already at the federal reserve level. So they want to do this, right? But Nixon's just not the guy, right? Um, we were kind of talking about this a little bit off mic, you know, why wasn't it, why wasn't Ford the guy? And I think just probably chaos in the country, like a lot of just national chaos at the time. Yeah. For, but, Ford, if you're, if you are capital, you're organized, you've got, or you're a big wing of capital. That's like, we need to, Discipline labor, tank the economy. It would be natural to say, like, well, okay, Nixon had the political savvy and just the political power. Like he was a a like he had his own political machine. He he was a Washington operator. Like he had, you know, I mean, yeah, you could argue maybe the last uh, American president with any actual power because he had like built it in a way over decades and knew how to operate it. Um. Like, why not then Ford, who's just the the placeholder asshole who comes in, kind of a dumbass, no ambition, (laughs) uh, no vision for anything. Why not get it through then? Why not start this uh, labor discipline then? And, yeah, I guess the what we maybe theorized or came to was, like, everything was so fucked up, maybe they were worried, like, it would be too harsh, right? So, like... Just the collapse of the Nixon administration itself was like a psychic shock to the country. Watergate, um, the the cal- the calamity of the ending of the Vietnam War between you know 
uh, basically uh, getting, you know, ending it in 73 to actually uh, leaving, uh, in an, you know, evacuating in 75. Uh, the, the Also, the, just the hangover of social upheaval of the 60s that maybe they're not certain yet that they've really have contained, you know? Like, yeah. it's maybe hard to tell. Maybe they're still Very worried. Clear. All the radi yeah. radicalism, right. you know? Okay, yes, they've already started fucking like getting rid of the the most radical yes it's all infiltrated yes they've started basically offing all the black panthers and the the movements are petering out but it was such a fucked up like time if you're a establishment capitalist like maybe you're not sure of that yet and then you're worried that the watergate shit is just going to erode and it did erode faith in institutions like to an incredible degree in America you don't know how it's going so maybe you pump the brakes. This is also the time when it starts, you know, all the COINTELPRO stuff comes out, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people are demanding hearings. Church committee. You have the church committee on, you know, the CIA and their, you know, assassin international assassination <laughs> programs and things like that. Um, hilariously, uh, Nixon, towards the end of his term, or, uh, yeah, before he gets tossed out, right, is essentially threatening constantly that he's going to start releasing documents about Kennedy's role in various assassinations mm -hmm. <laughs> across the world. <laughs> you know, these kind of things are happening. Well, I think, and so I think that just is the chaos of the the Ford years where everybody's just kind of holding on to see what happens. And you can right? also, like, you want to take it a little farther, you know, yeah. of course there's a whole current of uh, analysis and theory, let's say, that says that uh, Watergate was really a plot against Nixon by capital, you know, that gets sure. a little, that this was about, you know, you, it was, is this the same wing of capital that also wanted to do the labor discipline? And was this just, was getting him out of the way, like a longer, uh, term thing where like they knew like it couldn't happen right away, or is it just all multiple wings of capital doing different things at different times? Who knows? I mean that that you know that's yeah. a whole can of worms we don't need to get into, but you know that is a current of thinking. Oh yeah, I, I think you know no matter how conspiratorial you want to get about you know, get about it, like it's undeniable that a big part of the Watergate hearings was those in charge of America, right, politicians, etc., basically saying like. We got to find a fall guy for some of this shit, right? Like things look really bad. The thing in Vietnam, fuck, that was a big, we fucked up. Yeah. The, you know, uh, rising prices, fuck, that sucks, right? But also like uh, all the FBI, CIA shit that was coming out, right? This also, by the way, the 70s is the golden era of like Kennedy conspiracy theories and stuff like that too, right? So I think they were basically saying like, everything's going to shit. We need a fall guy. And I, I think that is pretty evident and rife in like and, the Watergate year. And the guy who's actually <laughs> like, a the one guy nobody likes. <laughs> a guy who nobody likes, who is actually holding like yep. some level of executive power and on a several issues doesn't want to do what Capital wants to do, which is discipline labor heavily and maintain the Cold War. Yeah. Nixon and Kissinger, for whatever their faults, basically end the Cold War. Yeah. And that pisses off a lot of people, too. They they end the Cold War by making peace with the Chinese and the Soviets. And also, they don't want to do harsh labor discipline. So, you know, take, yeah. you know, luckily, add that into your... Kissinger, uh, anti-imperialist. Yeah, luckily, well, I mean, he was, just, he was doing it from that strategic way of, like, the U.S. not joining, like, the League of Nations or whatever. Yeah, it's like, I think right. we could do imperialism better if we, like, yeah. you know... <laughs> Try to kind of change their strategy a little bit. Luckily, there's a cowboy in California riding his way to Washington to resolve all these issues. <laughs> but before we get there, right, um, basically comes in, you know, so Nixon's not the guy, right? Ford, I think it's probably just too, too much tumultuous of a time. But in 76, comes in the 
perfect limp dick fucking loser. Oh, that scene, Brian, that limp dick loser seems like a perfect place to um let's ha- we're going to hang that limp dick off the cliff. <laughs> that limp dick is all that is holding America on the edge of a cliff. It we are we're hanging by our foreskin uh at this moment. And that makes that the perfect place to say if you want to hear the rest of the story, what story you ask? Are you lost as to where we were going? Um <laughs> things get better. Yeah. Let's you know briefly review that we are talking about how the talk about the need to discipline labor coming from the Fed by essentially inducing a recession is not some new thing. It's a strategy that's been around before that we've gone through and at varying levels been living with our entire lives. Um, and we're about to get to the Volcker shock. Uh, and uh, where America's uh, dick becomes hard and slaps labor in the face. Yep. Yep. All right. uh, so with that, if you want to hear the end to the end of this, um, you can uh, subscribe to our Patreon because this uh, we will uh, finish it up there. All right. Volker, after Volker Shock, Inception booms clearly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so everybody, um, yeah, uh, tune in for that later this week on the Patreon. So um, we look forward to reading the names of all our new patrons next week on the main episode um, that sign up just to listen to us continue to talk economics. Hell yeah. Let's go. You guys love it. Another double episode of economics. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll talk to you all next time. Bye. 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 Bye.